What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul Podcast. It's your host, Chris. And today, oh my God, I could not wait to post this episode. It keeps getting pushed back and stuff, but I'm so glad that it is finally coming out and is with Steve Fleming about his incredible book, Know Thyself. All right. So before uh, I introduce Steve and uh, the topic and the conversation, uh, real quick, couple things. Uh, I do start uh, my new job this week, so the the podcast schedule uh, is going to be a little bit different. Not sure what it is yet, but as I've been right, reminding you, I'm going to remind you again. Make sure you are following me on Instagram and Twitter at the Rewired Soul. All right, I'll give you all the updates, and you know, aside from that, I just love uh, chatting with all of you. I've been having some great conversations, especially with all the craziness going on in the world. Um, I, I love the community that we have because you guys know a lot more than me on a lot of things. So I get to just toss questions out there and you guys answer and it's fantastic. So make sure you're following me on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul so you don't miss updates and we get to chat. I love chatting with you. All right. Second thing, uh, a lot of you are listening to this episode a day early, and that is because you are a paid subscriber over on the Rewired Soul Substack. So if you're interested in that, you want to help support the podcast and get the episodes a little bit early, uh, head over to the rewiredsoul.substack.com. It's linked down below. It's five bucks a month or $50 for the year. Help support the podcast. You get some early content. All right. But anyways, anyways, Steve Fleming, he wrote the book, Know Thyself, all right? And it's all about the incredibly important topic. Like, there are a few topics that are, like, extremely important. One of them, I think, is, like, moral philosophy, all right? I, I think it's underrated. I think a lot of forms of philosophy are very underrated, and it drives me bonkers, but that's a whole other conversation. But one of the other topics is the one we're talking about today, which is self awareness okay and steve fleming is a researcher when it comes to self-awareness how self-aware are we what are its limits you know what are some of the misconceptions and if any of you pay attention to what really interests me like uh, i don't talk about self-awareness as much but one topic that i'm always talking about is self-deception okay so self-deception is like right there in conjunction with self-awareness like we are lying to ourselves constantly and it's one of the reasons why i try to give people the benefit of the doubt right like there's so many people labeled as like grifters or you know whoever it is like the people fueling polarization and just you know playing into the tribalism and all that i i try not to think of them as this these like nefarious uh uh people right i'm just like have they deceived themselves to a point where they don't even realize what they're doing, right? When we talk about, you know, even like Joe Rogan and the misinformation, I'm like, I think that Joe Rogan is just lacking a lot of self-awareness. So that is why Steve Fleming and his research and his book are so important. And one of the things that you'll hear Steve and I talking about, aside from self-awareness, self-deception and all that, is science communication right? Uh, because that is so, so, so important. There are so many academics that I bring on. And one of the reasons I have this podcast is because I want to bridge that gap between like academic researchers who talk like above a lot of our heads and bring it down. So it makes sense to people like you and me and Steve and I, we talk a little bit about, you know, science communication and how important that is and why more uh, researchers and academics need to start writing uh, more books for mainstream audiences. Uh, because one of the things I absolutely loved about Know Thyself, which I read again to prep for this interview, 
uh, you know, I, I noticed how well he did communicating some of these complex, like neurological studies and everything. But yeah, anyways, uh, uh, this conversation was really fun. I even like toss out some, some like possible experimented Steve to figure out how we would test people to see if they're lying or they're just not self-aware, you know, but anyways, this is such an important topic. So make sure you head down to the description. Uh, Steve isn't super active on Twitter, but make sure you're following him. Uh, anyways, follow him over on Twitter and for the love of God, get his book. Like if you do just one thing, just buy his book. Okay understand the limits of our self-awareness like none of us are immune steve and i talk about this too like get his book learn the limits the struggles uh figure out some things about self-deception and figure out a way to buy a second copy for someone in your life who lacks self-awareness and figure out how to give it to them without them being like super offended because none of us nobody on planet earth is ever like yeah yeah you know i i'm not self-aware at all we all think we're self-aware okay so everybody uses this book so get a couple of copies of this book all right but anyways uh again follow me over on instagram and twitter at the rewired soul if you're new to the podcast make sure you're subscribed make sure you're following all right but anyways without further ado here's my conversation with steve fleming about his incredible must-read book know thyself All right. Hello, Steve. Thanks so much for joining me. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks so much for having me on, Chris. Yeah, it's been a long time. Like we talked last year when your book first came out. <laughs> and now we're finally doing it. So I'm super excited. So we're going to be talking about uh, your amazing book, Know Thyself. So before we dive into the topics, for those who have yet to meet you, can you introduce yourself? What kind of uh, background do you have? What kind of research do you do and all that kind of good stuff? Sure. Yeah. So my name is Steve Fleming. I'm a um, cognitive neuroscientist at University College London. Um, and so I originally did a undergraduate degree in psychology. Um, I actually got into uh, studying psychology by reading popular science books on the mind. So I'd never mm. encountered it at high school. Um, that's partly why I was keen to write a um, a book for the for a, a more general audience myself because mm. that was so influential on my own approach to the subjects, um, and so I did an undergrad degree in psychology at Oxford, and while I was there, I had a tutor Paul Azapardi who made a big impression on me and kind of pointed out that it was possible to combine neuroscience and the tools of psychology to start studying things like consciousness and self awareness and to create a rigorous science of this. Um, and so then I went to UCL and did my PhD, went to the States for a few years to New York where I did a postdoc. And then now I'm back at UCL running my own lab, uh, studying the neuroscience of self-awareness. Awesome. So, you know, uh, you know, I, I, I never asked this, but I'm going to ask you since you kind of got into like pop psych books and stuff like that. So, so I'm just a regular guy. I read a ton of books. Right. I dropped out of college, you know, so like it took me a while to really get down with that, like academic lingo. But I'm curious yep. because like, I, I'm assuming you see something that I see all the time. Like, do you think on a broader scale, academics have a difficult time communicating their work 
to the general public. Like, not only do I think about that a lot, but I've been thinking about it a lot, especially during COVID, right? Mm -hmm. Like communicating this stuff. So, so what are your overall thoughts? Is it getting better, worse? Where is it at now? And what can, if any academics are listening, which a lot of academics do, <laughs> but what can they do? What do you think would, would help? Yeah. With that yeah, I, it's a great question. I think that, um, I think the first thing to say is that it's, it's hard. It's harder than most scientists or academics think. I, mm. You know, I think that um, I certainly found it an incredibly difficult process trying to, in a sense, boil down things we're doing every day. And inevitably, every scientific field develops its own shorthand and way of talking. Mm. And that shorthand is a, um, you know, it, it hides so much complexity that you assume the other person you're talking to in your field knows about because they've also grown up in that world and they've read the same papers and so on. But if you're actually forced to take that one word or term that you're using to communicate and explain it, what it actually means, mm -hmm. it's really tough. And I think some people are better at it than others. Um, but I think one thing that has happened is that it's become more acceptable within the academic community to be kind of taking scientific communication seriously as a thing that we should all be investing in to, to a greater or lesser degree, right? So I think historically 20, 30 years ago, it was almost considering, considered like you were selling out a bit. You weren't yeah, really a yeah. serious scientist if you were spending your time writing books for a general audience um, because it was considered that that was, a, in some sense, a waste of your time. You should be at the bench or in the lab or, you know, doing the science every hour of your day rather than trying to communicate it more broadly. And I think that has that that attitude has changed mm -hmm. i've definitely seen that change within my time um at, within a university environment and also the attitude of funders so one of my you know the major funder of our work is the welcome trust <laughs> and they've now more and more of, of um funders are kind of asking what are you doing for public engagement they've mm. put such a big impetus into this and it's now a condition of a lot of their funding that mm. you need some kind of strategy for engaging with a wider audience. I think it's absolutely right because at the end of the day, we are not in an ivory tower. We exist as a, in, in virtue of the fact that the, the wider public want to fund this stuff. They want to, um, invest in science, invest in, um, academia, and we shouldn't just take that money and then go and squirrel it away and. Yeah do our own thing in the lab and never tell anyone what you're doing. I think it's, it's, it's almost like an obligation, I think mm -hmm. at some level to turn it around and communicate what we're doing back and to try and do that in the most, um, transparent and accessible way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of the reasons I, I, I do this podcast, you know, cause I, I read so much and, you know, I, I know a lot of people don't, don't read and stuff, but you guys, like people like yourself. You're, cut, you're, you're researching such important topics, right? And I always, uh, whenever I'm reading a book, no matter what book I'm reading, and maybe it's from my like own addiction recovery, where I'm always like trying to see what can I learn from this, right? And just for example, your book, it's on self-awareness. Like we're all dealing with people on a daily basis where we're thinking like, you completely lack self-awareness, right? <laughs> we're dealing with irrational people 
And, uh, you know, you cover this in the book. We all think that we're the most self-aware people. We, we overestimate our abilities. Like, so everything you guys are researching, it, it, it involves our daily lives. And that's mm -hmm. why <laughs> I'm like, we need to be communicating all this stuff. And for example, going back to, you know, the whole COVID thing, mm, what, I've, yeah. like, what I've noticed is just a lot of people don't understand how the scientific process works, right? Like when I was growing up and just hearing science, I just think of like chemicals, a periodic table and all that stuff. But, you know, I've been, you know, I've had a lot of sci uh, scientific uh, philosophers on here and, and everything. And it's just getting into that mindset and knowing good from bad science. Mm -hmm. And that's extremely important. I've been personally writing about some of the nonsense over on Joe Rogan's podcast lately, right. but but there's a, there's a lot that sounds like it's science, but it's not, but, and that's why this communication and, and knowing what you are all doing in the lab and how you like isolate variables and test different things and have different theories, but, um, you know, to dive into yeah. this topic of self-awareness, what, what made you, what made you interested in this, like this topic, what made you want to dive deep and make this your field of research? Yeah, I, I think it really started back when I was studying psychology as an undergrad, I was captivated by the philosophy of mind problems that usually end up being kind of things you talk, talk about down the pub, but you don't actually do any research on, you know, it's kind of like, imagine if Mary grew up in a black and white room, would she learn anything about color? Those kind of thought experiments, mm -hmm. which have been pursued strongly in the philosophy of mind literature, but haven't tended to cut through into the experiments we're doing in psychology and neuroscience. And the reason they've not tended to cut through is because it's really hard to get an empirical handle on things like consciousness and self-awareness, which seem a bit vague and see more the preserve of philosophy rather than science. Mm -hmm. And I've always wanted to work in an area where I can kind of take something that seems a bit philosophically vague and try and make it a bit more precise mm -hmm. and empirically tractable and something we can study in the lab. And that's what I've been trying to do for self-awareness over the course of my career so far. Yeah. Yeah. So. Where, where did that kind of transition happen for you from like psychology to a little bit more neuroscience? Cause me, uh, mm -hmm. you know, um, when I, when I first got sober, I started getting into like neuroscience. I wanted to understand what, what's, what's happening in my brain. Why, why is it, you know, when I drink or use drugs and all that, I got really into neuroscience. I learned about all the lovely neurotransmitters and all that stuff. But then I kind of, I, I got really into just like psychology and human behavior and, you know, obviously they're intertwined, but what made you want to like start looking at, you know, like brain regions and putting people in scanners and, and all of that, like, does that, does that help us understand better when we know what parts of the brain are activating or like, mm. where, where did that transition come from? Yeah. So, I mean, when I started my PhD, I went to London in I guess it was 2006. Um, and that was at UCL at the time, um, had one of the premier, it still does has where I am now, one of the premier brain imaging centers in the world. And it really invented the methods and the software that was needed to analyze brain imaging data to kind of make sense of it 
and to relate it to psychology, to what people mm -hmm. were actually thinking and doing while they were lying in the scanner. And that was a non-trivial thing to achieve, like to be able to create these brain maps that we're now very familiar with because we see them in the media a lot, but they kind of create these activation maps that tell us where different brain regions are um, activated in proportion to a certain cognitive function. That was extremely new in the late nineties, early two thousands. And so that was kind of where I got into um, the field was around that time. And the first wave of brain imaging studies had happened, which had localized different types of cognitive function, like processing of visual images or sounds and all the way up to higher cognitive functions, like, um, executive function and so on. And so I was really interested in using those tools to start to pass out what are the mechanisms supporting metacognition or thinking about thinking. Mm -hmm. And so far that had only been studied, um, using the tools of psychology and we had mm. no idea how it was related to the functions of the human brain. And one insight we got from that was that, um, there were strong links between the structure and function of a brain region in the prefrontal cortex called the frontal pole, right towards the front of the prefrontal cortex. There were strong links between what that region was doing and metacognition. Mm. Now we know that that we now know that that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's actually a broader network of regions involved in metacognition. But what was really fascinating about that first set of findings was that we know from comparative work, looking at animals, um, and comparing the, the, the brains of animals to humans, we know that the frontal pole is one of the few regions that is specifically expanded and developed in the human brain compared to monkeys. And so, and this is work from colleagues at Oxford that have done beautiful comparative work, looking at the monkey brain and the human brain and looking for differences. Mm. And surprisingly, there's not many differences. The main, the main, you know, story there is that they're more similar than you think the monkey brain and the human brain are very similar indeed, but one of the standout regions that is different is the frontal pole. So that's really interesting because it starts to suggest, well, maybe the frontal pole is creating some human unique function. Mm -hmm. And we show in our studies that that is also the region we see strongly implicated in self-awareness. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that makes sense too. So you kind of, you kind of just followed your, your curiosity. You saw like a gap in the research where like, right. we're talking about right. the, the kind of the external experience of this, you know, metacognition and then wanting to get inside. So that's interesting, but you know, uh, it seems to me, and maybe I'm way off base, but it seems like there's a debate within like the science community about neuroscience and brain imaging. Mm. So maybe you can help mm -hmm. break that down for me. Like I've heard people call like brain imaging, like blobology right and they're like you can't tell anything from these regions lighting <laughs> up and there's right. so many networks and things communicating with one another and all this like i've had some guests where they're basically like ah you don't know anything from that stuff right, <laughs> you know right, right. but then you know obviously there's people like yourself uh you discuss uh the work of emil seth who was also a guest mm -hmm, on the podcast mm -hmm. and yeah you know yeah. so i'm familiar with his work but it's just so it's so interesting to me because it seems like some people almost talk about like certain aspects of uh, brain imaging or neuroscience, like it's some kind of pseudoscience. So can you, where's that disconnect happening? Like yeah. what, what can and can't we know from the current I mean, technology? 
Right. I mean, this is a great question. We could talk about this, I think, all night, basically. <laughs> that, like, what is, what is the right approach to understand the human mind and brain? So the first thing to say is that, you know, imaging is not, it, it's very far away from being a pseudoscience in the sense that the results you get there are precise and on a well um, structured statistical foundation. That was really the achievement of everyone working in MRI physics and, um, and cognitive neuroimaging during the nineties was to create that foundation for current mm -hmm. brain imaging. So it's in a sense, like, it's kind of amazing actually that you can put someone in the scanner, you can get them to do a task, like looking at, um, different types of images like faces and houses, mm -hmm. and you can see reliably differences in the pattern of activation to these different image categories. And that tells you something about how those images are being processed. Now, I totally accept the critique that this is very coarse insight into what individual neurons are doing, because mm -hmm. even at the highest resolutions we have available at the moment, a single voxel, which is like a pixel in the image you get from the scanner, a single voxel is containing thousands and thousands of neurons. So we're certainly not able to tell what's happening with the same resolution as say a animal neuroscientist who can stick an electrode in and measure a single yeah. neuron. But also the animal neuroscientist who's putting an electrode in is looking at a single brain region. Whereas with brain imaging tools like functional MRI, you get a global picture of the whole brain at work. Mm -hmm. And I think the important point to say here is that localization of function, which is what people are most familiar with from the media, you get a map that lights up, which says like, here are the regions that are active when you are in love, for instance, or something like that. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of thing that people think of when they think of brain imaging. That's just a starting point. So those mm -hmm. studies are really important, but they provide you with a map, but just like a map, you know, may provide you with a way to plan a journey, a brain map is a starting point for trying to understand what a brain region is doing, the computations mm. it implements. And I think you're always going to need human brain imaging to understand human function. So if we want to understand things like language and consciousness and metacognition and certain types of memory, like autobiographical memory, these things, they might not be human unique, but they're certainly very well developed in humans. And so we want to use tools where we can image the human brain, um, but we don't want to try and claim that it's the best thing since sliced bread. We are, we yeah. are well aware that it is limited in resolution, um, but it's improving every week, right? So yeah. the new, new higher field strengths, better resolution, new, new technologies, it's improving all the time, but I think we just can't you know, we have to, we have to be able to use these tools, which are actually quite new to be able to study the living human brain. Otherwise we're not going to make progress on understanding how the human mind works, which is probably working in a somewhat different way to our, even our closest animal relatives. Mm -hmm. If it wasn't different then you know, why are humans doing all the cool things we're doing? Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. So I, I don't I don't mean to like say that we can't learn anything from animal neuroscience. We can learn a ton from animal neuroscience. Mm -hmm. I think it's a complementary picture and we want to be able to study the computational processes that support the human mind, 
And one tool in that armory for solving that problem is brain imaging. But mm. just looking at maps is just a starting point. It, 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 it's not the end point, if you like. Yeah, yeah. And uh, what, what you're talking about with like the technology and everything, and Neil and I were talking about that as well. And, you know, we don't even know where the technology will be later on, yeah. but, you know, because yeah. it's still relatively new. But, uh, yeah, I want to dive into uh, one of the topics, which was the number one reason I wanted you on the podcast, Steve, because, okay, so we're going to talk about self-deception, all right? I am obsessed with this topic. Like, I, 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 I always, like, try to think about why I am, but, like, I see it everywhere. I see it within myself. I was a drug addict, right? And drug addicts are always in denial, you know? But I've been sober for almost 10 years, and I see the self-deception just everywhere. So there's obviously an intersection of self-deception and self-awareness. And right. I, you know, I'll read just about any book. Any book I come across is about self-deception or how we know what we know and why, you know, I just mm. finished a book called On Being Certain. Phenomenal book. Um, but yeah, so... So give me just kind of like your, your overall thoughts or what your research has found like on self-deception. Like I know in the book, you talk a little bit about, you know, evolution and things like that. I've been trying to read more about, uh, you know, why we evolved for self-deception. I just read mm -hmm. um, this book called Denial, but that focused on like how we're in denial of just like our own mortality, right? Yeah, yeah. I've, but, I've read that. It's, uh, I, yeah, I love that stuff. Yeah. We're actually thinking, we're actually starting some work on mortality awareness at the moment. That's a whole different topic, but it's fascinating. I completely agree. Yeah. Um, so, so why, why yeah. do we, why do we do it? What, why what's do we going do it? on? Yeah. <laughs> right. I, there's, well, there's lots of places to start, I guess. <laughs> one, one, I mean, one useful thing to say maybe to get us going here is, um, traditionally people have thought about the idea of denial or deceiving oneself as in a sense, being a defense mechanism, a quite Freudian thing where you repress something you don't want to think about mm -hmm. now. And the, 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 the notion of denial in psychiatry has been, you know, well, uh, studied and there has been that assumption permeating quite a lot of that word that it's motivationally driven that in a sense, people don't want to think about those things. And I think there is a component of that, the, the, you know, there, there probably is a motivational element to denial, but one thing that's come more recently from the literature on metacognition is the idea that you might seem like you're in denial, but the reason that you seem like you're in denial about something is maybe because you lack for whatever reason, the machinery for good self-awareness, the cognitive machinery for good self-awareness. And you might lack that cognitive machinery because you've had an illness or you've had some kind of um, brain damage or because you're stressed or there's maybe loads of way, reasons why you lack that machinery for self-reflection or it's impaired in the moment. And that can appear from the outside like you're willfully denying yeah. that you've been you know, um, a horrible person or like, you know, so I you know, you see this in your own, I, I see this in my own life too. Like when I'm really stressed, yeah. then I often feel like after the fact, I can't recognize it in the moment, but I realize after the fact that I was probably lacking in self-awareness of the fact that I was, you know, not being a very mm -hmm. um, kind person to the people around me because I was so stressed in that, in that period of time. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that that, that's something to say maybe about like 
people usually think of denial as motivationally driven, but it could actually be because of a failure or deficit in the, the, the normal machinery for self-awareness. Yeah. Um, and so that then suggests that it's a multifaceted concept. It, it, it's not just one thing. There could be lots of reasons for self-deception. So one could be because we um, don't want to think about something and the other could be because we can't think about that thing. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, try to follow me and I'm, I'm hoping I can make make sense while I say this. So like in the book, you talk a bit about like theory of mind, right? And yeah. how we evolved, how we developed this and everything. And uh, aside from self-deception, I've also read a lot about deception detection because I hate, you know, this whole idea of like body language reading and all these things. Like it's all just ridiculous, right? But we, we love to think that we know another person's uh, intentions, uh, you know, whether they're lying or whatever, right? So then we get into like uh, reasoning, like uh, you're, you're, you, may, you might even know him, but like uh, Hugo Mercier, right? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And him and Dan Sperber, they wrote that book, uh, you know, The Enigma of Reasoning. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I've, I've read some other books that discuss this where we, you know, the best way to deceive others is to deceive ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. So here's, right. here's where I'm landing on this. Uh, with all the polarization in the world, um, you're on Twitter. I don't know if you like limit your Twitter consumption, but there's like people who are just out there and they're, they're saying polarizing stuff. They're creating their tribes and everything. And, yep. and I personally try to give people the benefit of the doubt. I like to think that, you know, we're naturally good people. And so when we're looking at self, uh, self-deception, self-awareness, reasoning, all these other things, theory of mind. I'm like, mm -hmm. I look at these people, I'm like, do these people even realizing that they're BSing themselves, right? Like, do they even know, right? Because kind of like what you're talking about, there could be these cognitive failures and then you get into motivated reasoning and all these other things. Right. So right. when I see these people, I want to <laughs> be angry. I want to be like, you are intentionally lying to people, but I'm like, maybe you lied to yourself enough that you actually believe this now. Right. <laughs> so break that down for me. Yeah, no, I think that's a really interesting insight that and i have i also get angry like a regular person on twitter when i see all this polarization and and you know kind of shouting matches happening yeah. but i think you're right that the more constructive attitude there is one of compassion in the sense like we all fluctuating through our lives to a greater or lesser degree will lose or gain metacognitive awareness of what we do and don't know. Mm -hmm. I think that's the perspective that neuroscience brings to the table, that in a sense, this is not a thing that pops out of thin air. Self-awareness is not just free floating. It's grounded in the machinery of the human brain and it can get better or worse for, for, for different reasons. I mean, we, we did one study on exactly this, where um, we looked at um, in a big sample of um, American participants, where we asked them to, this was all conducted online. We asked them to first fill out a series of questionnaires about their political attitudes and um, their attitudes to various uh, civil issues like gun control and so on. And then we also asked them questionnaires about what they think about people that might disagree with them on these issues. And so they had questions such as like, my view is the only correct one and everyone else's is wrong mm -hmm. and they had to say how much they agree with that kind of statement and at the same time we then got them to do a task 
um, via the web browser where they would make a whole series, hundreds of decisions about what they saw on, on a computer screen about these ambiguous images and then rate how confident they were in their decisions. Mm. And from those kind of data, we can compute what we call metacognitive sensitivity, which is how well your confidence tracks your performance. So intuitively, if I'm, um, if I have higher confidence when I'm right on that task and lower confidence when I'm wrong, then I can be ascribed a high degree of metacognitive sensitivity. And we found in lots of studies now that that is independent of your primary task performance. So you can actually be doing the task really well, but have poor metacognition because you don't realize when you're right or wrong, or you could be doing the task really badly, but have really good metacognition because you realize when you made errors, right? So yeah. these two things are different, but that kind of task gives us an objective measure of self-awareness. And what we found, perhaps in hindsight, unsurprisingly, the people who had less self-awareness on the task, this, this task that we'd created in the lab, were also the people who tended to have more um, dogmatic and rigid mm. views about political issues. They were the ones who were unwilling to admit that they might be wrong and someone else might be right. And so this goes 100% in support of your intuition there, that maybe the people who are uh, um, espousing polarized views on Twitter, it could be because they have an agenda and they're well aware of the fact they might be wrong, but mm -hmm. it could well be that their metacognition about that particular issue might not be as finely tuned as someone else. And so they might not realize that there is another position to take on this. And that I think mm -hmm. provides a different stance and a more compassionate stance as well, because we can recognize that that could happen to ourselves as well. Yeah. Um, for some issues, for instance. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then like, and then it gets into a whole other topic, you know, when we have this compassion, uh, the compassion comes from realizing that it could happen within ourselves. But if we also suck at self-awareness, we can't even develop that compassion because we think that we would never do something like that. <laughs> so, well, yeah. So that's a kind of like, yeah, that's interesting. A lack of metacognition about the fact you might be wrong about metacognition. Yeah. Exactly. Is, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, so, uh, I'm curious with, with kind of like that, that, uh, that particular study that you're talking about, uh, mm. because as, as we're talking about this, I'm thinking of just a million examples. How familiar are you with all of the controversy around Joe Rogan's podcast right now with the anti-vax? And I, I have a surface level. Okay. I, I, yeah. I'll, I'll give a brief overview for the audience as well, but there's, uh, you know, a, a couple main doctors who have been on Dr. Robert Malone and, uh, Dr. Peter McCullough. And, you know, they're very, uh, you know, I believe both, I believe both of them have been vac uh, vaccinated, but they're doctors. They do a ton of research. They're highly credentialed. Malone was, uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of debate about how involved he was on the MRNA technology, but anyways, they're on there. And I've had to do a bunch of research just to check, um, you know, because they're citing like bad studies from uh, non-credible research, you know, facilities. Uh, they've cited papers that have been retracted or disputed or debunked or whatever, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, when we're looking at this, you know, because um, I'm always thinking uh, from like the motivated reasoning standpoint is like, what, what's your motive, right? Um, and I also come from like a marketing background too. And I try to teach people like, always ask yourself, like, what's in it for this person if they convince you? But at the same time, I try to develop that compassion. And I'm like, are these people aware? Are they aware that they're citing bad studies? Are they aware that they might be wrong? Uh, in the book, you, you, you know, later on, you talk, talk a lot about like intellectual humility and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. anyways, mm -hmm. with people pushing 
vaccine hesitancy or anti-vax rhetoric or whatever it is, would like, if we wanted to find out, if they volunteered, if they said, Steve, sign me up, let me see how self-aware I am. Would you do yeah. like that study or would you do something else? Like for these big uh, figures who are pushing like something that could be harmful or extremely polarizing or contrarian to see if they actually believe what they're saying or they might have an ulterior motive. How do we test that? Yeah, I, I, I mean, that is tricky, right? So it's really <laughs> hard to, it's not, it's not going to, there's not going to be a magic bullet. I don't think from psychology that can tell us kind of what's going on there. I think, um, that then becomes more like a case study where Mm. A clinical interview would probably reveal more about the motives underpinning someone's specific uh, beliefs there. I do think metacognition, measuring it objectively is helpful in creating that picture. Um, we could certainly give a test like that. Um, and it'd be interesting to know where, where people who hold extreme anti-vax views, um, sit on that spectrum, but I think it. Because it, it, we are one, and, and the reason why I think that would be useful is because we've found in a number of studies now that there is what we call a domain general component to metacognition. So what that means is that it can measure your metacognition on, uh. a, on one task, and that will predict with some degree of fidelity, your self-awareness about other areas of your life. So yeah. there seems to be a relatively general capacity for metacognition. And so knowing about that capacity is helpful in predicting to what extent people are prone to perhaps adopting more dogmatic views, but in any individual case, and I've just recently written a paper together with, um, my colleague at UCL, Tali Sharrett and also, oh, Tally Cass Sharrett, yeah. yeah. And, and, um, and others who, and, and we. In the, in, in, a, in this paper, we talk about how beliefs are formed and what drivers might, um, affect which belief you choose to adopt. Mm. And in the neuroscience literature on this, there's been a kind of tendency to focus on the formation of beliefs about things in the world that can either be accurate or inaccurate. And people often kind of rail again, they, they become frustrated with someone who holds an inaccurate belief relative to the ground truth. For instance, like you might think that the, you know, the, for take, take, for instance, um, the belief, the earth is flat, right? So that's another, yeah. um, <laughs> topic we could get into, right? So the, there you've got the consensus ground truth, and then you've got an accuracy violating belief, which is that we all um, believe what we certainly very fondly hope is the truth that the earth is round and yeah. you've got a subset of people who are believing it's flat and that is violating the accuracy of that more widely held belief. Mm -hmm. Now, usually that would be treated as a, as somehow crazy or irrational, right? Mm -hmm. But what we try and argue in the paper is that if you just consider the accuracy aspect of it, it is crazy and irrational. Mm -hmm. But beliefs are not held just because they are accurate. Beliefs mm -hmm. are held for other reasons as well. And a big component of this is what we call in the paper, accuracy, independent factors. And those are things like, if I hold this belief, I'm going to be part of a nice community of like-minded people and they're my friends. And 
this probably affects like the kind of political beliefs we tend to hold. Because if I tomorrow decided to completely change my political views, I would probably lose close friends and so on. Yeah. And so there's a, and our argument in the paper, and this is a hypothesis that now needs, you know, unpacking and testing, but our argument in the paper is that all those processes could go on under the hood. The, the decision to, in a sense, choose what to believe in is likely to be quite a low level unconscious computation, which is weighing all these different factors, including the accuracy independent factors. And we then have this belief that appears to us to be subjectively justified and to be held with a quite a high degree of confidence. Mm. But actually the reason we might hold it is not because it's accurate. It could be we're holding it because it helps us integrate into a social community. And I think that's probably what's happening with say the flat earth, uh, community. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's so interesting that you just wrote about that. I just finished a book called The Bias That Divides Us uh, by Keith Stanovich. And it's mm. about political polarization and everything. But there is a part where I had this like aha moment, but we, he was talking about rationality and irrational beliefs, right? And you you really, like, it really got me thinking about what what is rational. And when it comes to the group level, right, since we're such social tribal creatures, um, is it rational? Like, is it rational to go against everybody within your group? Like, for example, I'm not a religious person, but I always use that as an example when I'm thinking about it. If I grew up in a certain part of the United States where my family was religious, all my neighbors are religious, all my friends at school are religious, would it be rational for me to tell them that God doesn't exist? That would seem irrational based on the group aspect of it. And you go back to, you know, evolutionary psychology, uh, I, I was just talking with my son about this the other day. Like, would you want to tell everybody in your very small tribe that like praying to a sun God isn't like the right thing? No, they might kick you out of the tribe. So now we have this whole conversation right. about like, what is rational? We've got to do these like cost benefit yeah. analysis. And that, I, I guess that has also helped me develop some empathy because I'm like, you might lose friends. Cause I, uh, here in Las Vegas, where I'm from, we have a large uh, Mormon community. Right. And I've had friends who have left the Mormon religion. Mm. Uh, I've had friends because, you know, the Mormon religion isn't always like too happy with uh, people who turn out to be homosexual. Right. I've had people who have been like shunned by their families and everything like that. So when we're talking about these things, rationality has a whole different definition because uh, and, and I love your thoughts on it. It feels like the general view on rationality is this like cold, hard, uh, like almost uh, economist point of view of just pure, like, uh, if you're not believing the facts of what's going on, <laughs> you're being irrational, but we're not weighing in these other things. So do you think we're, uh, what are your thoughts on like how we're defining rationality? Do we need a broader description? Do we need to break down rationality into subcategories? You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I think it, from one perspective, you can have a quite minimal definition of rationality that you can obtain from economics. So going back to Samuelson and, and the kind of era of economics in the forties and fifties, um, that in a sense defined, um, axiomatically, what does it mean to be rational? And there it's very minimal. All it means is I have some set of values and I act according to those values. Um, you know, I, 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 I act to, in a sense, seek out those values and I have a certain ordinary of preferences, but 
I could choose to value um, belonging to mm. a religious community over, say, um, getting a better paid job or uh, it, that. And for an economist, that would be rational as long as internally my value for the religion is higher than the value of money and so on. Mm -hmm. So that's, I guess, a minimal definition. But I think what your, um, what your example is picking up on is something broader about beliefs and what we as a um, society consider a reasonable belief. I guess that's another broader word we could use. So rather than just the economist definition of rationality, what's reasonable? And there, I think it is very socially relative. And I think that this is really thrown into sharp relief when you look at, say, the diagnostic manual for psychiatric disorders. If you look at what they define as a delusion, yeah. you have this caveat, which is it's a delusion as long as it goes against social consensus. And so in a sense, if, if I was the only person on earth who had the set of beliefs that were Christianity, and I was running around telling you, I've got this book, it's called the Bible. And there's this guy yeah. and trust me, like this all happened. I'd be considered deluded because I was holding a very specific belief that was not subject to external criticism. And, but because this is a belief shared by millions and millions of people around the world, it's not considered a delusion. So in that sense, we're. So everything is socially relative um, yeah. in terms of the beliefs we hold. I, t I completely agree. Yeah. And I think yeah. that, that then gives us quite deep insights into what it means to hold beliefs about the world, um, beliefs that maybe we don't obtain through the scientific method that we can't apply scientific method for. There are beliefs that then um, become reasonable because they are shared in a wider social group. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that, uh, that makes me think back to earlier in the conversation, we were talking about science communication, everything like that. Uh, because like here in the United States, I don't know how it is in the UK, but like in the legal system, they have a, a reasonable person standard, right? Would a reasonable mm. person in this situation right. would have, uh, would do what, you know, do this thing. And then it's like, if we can educate people on some of these things about self-awareness, rationality and everything like, you know, uh, when I, uh, you talked about mindfulness in the book, right? I got really into yeah. mindfulness meditation, but I got sober and I realized when my emotions are high, my prefrontal cortex isn't fully functioning and I'm being a little bit more emotionally driven, right? So in a highly stressful situation, my reasonableness might change in my social right. setting, you know? So that's a, that's reason number like 568, why people should be educated about some of these aspects of science and we need to communicate that stuff. But, um, you know, uh, something else that's kind of within this topic, uh, that I, I, I've been thinking a lot about lately. Um, and I think it goes back to, uh, like I had Michael Shermer on the podcast a long time ago and he, he often brings this up, uh, when it comes to, uh, pseudoscientists, right. Uh, he's, he's actually quoting somebody else who I can't remember, but he says like, nobody wakes up in the morning and says like, Hey, you know, I'm going to go to my pseudoscience lab and practice some pseudoscience, right? Like nobody thinks that they're a pseudoscientist. And I just love that because I think about it everywhere. And lately, um, with a lot of the political conversations and class conversations, the, the, um, the word elite has been coming mm. up a lot. And I mm -hmm. see a lot of people, uh, get defensive. I see a lot of debates. I see a lot of people asking like, who is an elite? What do you mean by an elite? Right. 
And my girlfriend and I, we recently got into the show that everybody's been talking about forever. We've been binging it. It's called Succession. And oh, yeah. Love yeah. Succession. Yeah. So they're super rich. So, okay. So check this out. So, uh, uh, spoiler alert, kind of. Uh, season two, <laughs> uh, season two, uh, the oldest brother, what's his name, Connor, he decides he's going to run for president. Yeah. And at some point when he's like telling somebody about why he's running, he references the elites, like what the elites think, right? And I'm mm -hmm. like, this is a perfect example of what's going on. Like, he, like this is one of the richest families like, in their universe, right? They're one of the richest families in the world. And this guy is talking about the elites. And I think about that, like nobody thinks they're an elite. And it's, so that's why it's really difficult to have that conversation because uh, like I'm, you know, I'm left-leaning liberal, you know, but I've noticed a lot of people on the left get really offended by that word elite. Mm -hmm. uh, and and it's, it's, it's something that I'm just like, well, if nobody thinks, like if you sit back and you just take a step back and say, okay, well, nobody thinks they're a pseudoscientist. Nobody thinks they're an elite. Nobody thinks they're irrational, right? right? So if you take a step back and realize that nobody would ever say that, then you have to say, okay, well, something's going on here. So yep. can you can you speak to that? Like, why are there certain things where none of us, you won't find a single person, like even when it comes to morals, right? You, nobody's going to come up to you and say, hey, I'm an awful person. I do bad things, unless they're like psychotic or something like that. But mo nobody really thinks they're a bad person either. So why is it that there's certain definitions that we think don't apply to us, but they apply to other people for some reason? I don't know. It's really yeah. weird. I, I think it. I think it's related back to, um, you know, uh, Tally's framework that she's been working on for a while now. That we, you know, that I mentioned in terms of the paper we were writing about why people hold certain beliefs. There are. It, it is. It makes us. There are. There are, kind of emotional, benefits to holding deep-seated beliefs that we are in some sense doing okay and we're not horrible on various dimensions of life that are important to not only ourselves but also our social group. We don't want to think of ourselves as a morally abhorrent person. We don't want to think of ourselves as being poor um, at mm driving or being a father or yeah. whatever it is, right? You, and this is where I think a large part of these classic overconfidence or social superiority effects um, come from, where when you ask people the question of, you know, where do you think you lie in the percentiles of, say, driving mm -hmm. ability, mm -hmm. and then you average those percentile ratings together, you always get a skewed distribution because people tend to always think they're above average on those kind of traits. And not everyone can be above average in terms of social comparison um, or in terms of absolute placement, sorry, but everyone thinks they're above average in terms of uh, social comparison. And so I think that does come back to this motivational component of holding self, holding beliefs about ourselves. Um, yeah, I've forgotten the other part of the yeah, you, just, just why going no, like nobody thinks that they're a certain thing. But I think what it boils down to, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's like a identity protective cognition, right? Right. Like, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And yeah. and I think that yeah. So to, on the on the point about yeah, elites, I think this has been super interesting with respect to as you said towards the start of the conversation about COVID and science, mm. because there you've got this in a sense double life of science. Like science has had, I think. Its reputation has come out of the pandemic in general 
being the, the, the politicians and to a large extent, the public have realized how central basic science has been discovery science has been to mm -hmm. getting us out of the pandemic or hopefully fingers crossed getting us out of the pandemic because the, the vaccine development, it didn't just happen overnight. You needed to fund mm -hmm. basic science for two or three decades on some of these drugs, um, to, to on, on the vaccines to, to, to get to a point where you could roll that out pretty quickly. Um, so that on, on the one hand, that's. I think burnish the representation, reputation of science and why we need to be investing in basic science. On the other hand, you've got this, I think there's been this somewhat weird, uh, attitude where, especially towards the start of the pandemic in the UK, there was this sense that science was going to tell us what to do. Yeah. And, and when the models ended up having these big confidence intervals on them, obviously the, the, you know, people who are building these models about how infection rates are unfolding, don't mm -hmm. have a crystal ball. So they create a range of predictions. People, when they see the model in a sense being wrong, they're saying like, you know, the scientists got it wrong again. And there was this attitude, yeah. like they're always getting it wrong. So why trust them? Why trust government and so on? So I think there's this kind of like dual attitude and, um, the former is I think good in, in, in helping spread the word of how science can help society. And the second, I think is resting on this misunderstanding of what science gives you. It doesn't give you an answer. It gives yeah. you a provisional answer. It gives you maybe a prediction. It gives you an explanation, but that explanation could be overturned tomorrow when we get some more data in, or that yeah. prediction could be revised tomorrow when we get some more data in. And I think trying to communicate those both aspects of the importance of science and the way science works has sometimes been working across purposes in the pandemic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. This, you know, uh, this is a great transition to the last uh, couple things I want to ask you about. But uh, something I I think about a lot too is because there's been there's been some miscommunication and overconfidence and some things from uh, especially given the states with like the CDC, Fauci, and things like that. Where, uh, you know, they, they've taken on these kind of like moral ethical roles, like, oh, we had to tell people that masks weren't effective. So the, the, uh, first responders and, uh, you know, healthcare workers can have them. Right. So they're making these like, uh, moral and ethical decisions. I'm like, I don't know if you guys are the ones who should be making those, bringing some philosophers mm -hmm. or something like that. But the thing I think about a lot is, is confidence, right? Because science, mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. you said, it's, uh, you know, it's pointing us in a direction. Things might change. Uh, then that gets thrown back. I'm like, oh, first you said this, then you said that. But right. here's here's what I think about. Uh, if you had two people, right, in the middle of this pandemic where everything's uncertain, there's one guy who's like, hey, it's science. We might have new data. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not sure. I want to be cautious. You have that guy. Then you have somebody like a Donald Trump who says, this works. This is what will work. We're drawn to confidence too. So it's something yeah. I, I think about a lot and try to, you know, talk to my audience about is we need to respect uh not knowing and people who uh who publicly show that because we're drawn to that confidence especially in times of uncertainty because we we want those answers you know what i mean so i do i do empathize with the public figures because they're stuck in a weird place because yeah. anybody like a joe rogan and the people you know he's he's broadcasting to millions they can have absolute confidence and people are drawn to that you know what i mean 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, and I talk about this in the book about the, 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 the two sides to confidence here. So the, the you know, why, why is there this, um, tendency for people, as you say, politicians to want to have more black and white thinking, to want mm-hmm. to communicate either definitely this or definitely that. And there's an allure of decisiveness and you see the consequences of not having that allure when you have the charge of flip-flopping against politicians. So mm-hmm. the classic example of in the UK of Gordon Brown, when he got made prime minister, he still had to call an election. And if he'd called it early, he would have almost certainly won. But then the media got hold of the fact that he was kind of umming and ahhing about whether to do it. And just the fact they've learned that that, that was happening made him dive in the polls because everyone started to think, oh, yeah. he's not really decisive. He's not in control. So I think, and there have been nice um, experimental studies done here where if you get another person to observe someone making decisions or performing some task, the people who tend to be more confident and decisive in those situations are also better liked, they're better respected. And interestingly, that's even the case, even if their performance is no different to the next guy, right? So there's just this sense in which projecting that kind of confidence is socially beneficial for you. You know, you rise up in the ranks more quickly. And the paradox is that, as you say, the problem is then that that can be um, really detrimental in cases when you are overconfident about a wrong decision because it can massively backfire. Yeah. And so I have a nice quote in, I, in, the, in the book. I quote um, a line from Kathy Kay's book called The Confidence Code where she has this really um, nice line saying, even a popular pilot needs to be able to land a plane. Right. Mm. So this is idea that like, you can't just get you can't get by on confidence and decisiveness and popularity. You still have to have some underlying skill in the domain oh. in which you're working in. And the danger comes when you're trying to project this confidence, but actually you have no idea what you're doing. Yeah. Um, and I think that's when, you know, really, um, catastrophic consequences of overconfidence, um, come into play. And so I think, especially in, um, the sciences, you almost get trained to not be adopting that kind of overconfidence. You almost get trained to respect the lack of knowledge. You want to be aware of what you don't know. Mm-hmm. And that level of being comfortable with ignorance and almost welcoming it and saying like, this is good. I don't know the answer yet. And so that's going to motivate me to do more experiments to find out um, how things work. In a sense, the scientist's mapping between knowledge and confidence is relatively linear, whereas a politician's mapping between knowledge and confidence maybe needs to be more binary if they're going to survive in that world because they can't be just occupying that middle bit of the graph where they're always saying, I don't know, really, not sure yet, and so on. There's there's an incentive in the way the system's set up to be projecting um, decisiveness. Yeah, yeah, and I could see how that can that can kind of snowball too into what we were talking about earlier. Like, you know, when you deceive yourself, you convince others, right? So then some right. So, you know, they actually believe they are, you know, that expert. But, you know, to to just kind of wrap this thing up, I need everybody to go get your book. Cause I love the end because you get so many tips and 
things like that for developing better self-awareness and everything. Uh, I didn't even have time to ask you about, uh, you know, but it gives people another reason to get your book. The whole thing on learning <laughs> styles, I really liked that part too. So, but real quick, for anybody listening to this and they're like, oh my God, maybe I'm not as self-aware as I think. Where, where's a good place for people to start? If you, if you had a magic wand and people could start doing something tomorrow to make them a little bit more self-aware, more so they're more empathetic towards others, so they're not too overconfident, so they're not just, right. you know, screwing things up. What Where's a good founda uh, foundational starting point? Yeah, I mean, I think, so two things I would say here. So one is maybe a bit shameless in saying that, like, just learning about yeah. how that works is helpful. I do genuinely believe that. It also helps me sell more books that you can go and get yeah. the book and learn about <laughs> our self-awareness. But, but I do genuinely believe that, like, knowing more about the science of this and how the system works, you know, just a bit like if you learn a bit more, if you were having say, um, heart problems, you might want to learn a bit more about how the heart works. Cause that would make you a bit more aware of why it's going wrong. For instance, like exactly the same is, um, the case I think with metacognition with self-awareness that just learning a bit more about the influences on it and the situations in which it can fail helps us develop this more protective and compassionate mindset. So we can recognize that like, yeah, okay, it did fade out in that situation. I wasn't as aware of what I was doing or how I was behaving or how I was, um, uh, my attitude towards others as I should have been. And there's good reasons for that. And I understand why it might've happened. And so learning a bit more about science, I think is, is helpful there. And another one that I talk about towards the end of the book, um, is the early science, there's still plenty more to do on this, but I think the initial results are promising. Connecting meditation and mindfulness to, uh, there, there has been some nice studies done there showing that regular, um, nothing, no, you know, no rocket science here. It doesn't require you to adopt a certain way of doing meditation, but just taking the time for more um, reflective moments and just being comfortable with reflection and mindfulness, I think can have broader benefits, um, for our awareness of what we're doing in, in, in other areas of our life. Yeah. Yeah. I could definitely speak to that ever since I, I developed my own mindfulness practice, just periodically throughout the day, pausing for just yeah. a second and self-reflecting and just saying, oh, maybe I'm looking at this wrong. Oh, maybe my emotions are high. So 1000% agree. So Steve, thank you so much. For coming on, uh, know thyself. Uh, it's it's out. Uh, I just read it again out over the weekend, so two days binged it. So, where can everybody uh, find you to stay up to date with uh, your work, your research, uh, your research, and also, do you have any other books planned for the future? <laughs> yeah, so, so I'm on. Yeah, I'm quite regular on Twitter. So SM Fleming is my Twitter handle, and um, my lab website is Metacom lab.org um and there's links to all our research at the moment and there's a link on that page to the book as well um and yeah i think um i've said to i promised my wife that i won't be writing another book for a while um yeah. <laughs> but it's not a it's not a categorical no that i wouldn't be writing i think i mean right now it was you know it did it did consume me to some extent mm. um getting it done and I was really glad I did. And, um, but right now I kind of feel, um, it's nice to be able to go back to the lab and mm. to be planning new projects. And we're applying for a, some new grants on consciousness, which we're excited about. Um, 
and so I think, I feel like, you know, getting stuck back into the science, um, for a while, but I do have a rough plan of a book on theories of consciousness and, and how, um, you know, this, the, the quest for that kind of theory. And I think that's a really exciting area of science. Mm-hmm. It raises questions about what it means to be conscious and what a theory would look like. Could we yeah. build it in a machine? All the kind of stuff that comes along with, um, thinking about what it means to be aware, but that's going to be a bit of a way down the line, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And going back to the lab gives you more material for the book. So right, it, exactly. it works out. It's, a, yeah. vir- it's a virtuous cycle. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Steve, uh, yeah, it took us, it took us almost a year, but I'm super glad you were able to come on and, and yeah, I, I will be around. So years down the line when that next book comes up, uh, comes out, we'll be doing this again. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for the invite, Chris. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Steve Fleming about his book, Know Thyself. I hope you learned a little bit about self-awareness, self-deception, why we lie to ourselves, why we evolved to lie to ourselves, and and just, yeah, some of the research around it. Like, we we didn't even get to dive into all these topics. And, and like we discussed a little bit, there's so many great topics about, you know, learning styles. Like, the, the whole, like, last, uh, I, I want to say, like, third of the book, it's all like these things like that, that we encounter in daily lives, right? Where, where we're like, oh, well, this is my learning style. This like a lot of times we don't know ourselves well enough to make these hard stances. And sometimes what that's doing, like, especially in my experience, what it's doing is it's restraining us. It's restricting us from like the things and our capabilities, like the things that we could be doing because we think we're so sure about who we are, what works for us, what doesn't. And when we realize that, like, for example, let me throw this out there. I, four or five years ago, I would have told you, I am not a reader. I do not read books. Books are not my thing, right? Now I'm reading hundreds of books a year. So clearly I didn't know myself well enough, but you know, this is also very important for like mental health. Like when I was in my full-blown drug addiction and even after I got sober and as I've continued my mental health journey, my self-awareness uh, has been, you know, awful until I started really, really working on it. It's better, but it's not perfect. All right. So it, it's one of the reasons I'm constantly reading books like Steve Fleming's to, to recognize like my thinking errors as, as best as possible. You know what I mean? Uh, because a lot of us, we read these books and we're just like, aha, look, now I know why other people aren't self-aware. No, 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 baby. You got to look at yourself and be like, okay, what am I missing? All right, so make sure you head down to the description. Make sure you follow Steve over on Twitter. Grab, uh, well, did I say Twitter? On Twitter and grab a copy of his book. Know thyself, like I said, buy a copy for someone else in your life. Give it to them without, uh, without offending them somehow. You're creative. I'm sure you will figure that out. All right. But before I let you go, uh, follow me over on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul. Podcast schedule might be changing a little bit, but this way you don't miss any updates. And I love chatting with all of you. Next, a couple easy ways to support the podcast that do not cost you a penny. Uh, Make sure uh, to share this episode. Share this episode. That's an easy way. That's an easy way to teach uh, your friends, family members, coworkers, whoever it is, your followers about self-awareness without offending them because you're just sharing it out into the world. Share this episode okay share it out over on social media or share any of the episodes that you like that helps out a ton uh and next take a few seconds head over to apple Podcasts, leave a rating and review that helps out a lot uh not only do i enjoy your feedback 
but uh, it also helps with the algorithms and algorithms are king. Okay. So uh, a few other ways to help support the podcast that costs a little, but not too much. Uh, one, you can become a Substack subscriber, five bucks a month or $50 for the year. You get all the regular episodes a day early and a little bit comes back to help support what I'm doing here. Next, you can check out some of my books over on the rewiredsoul.com about mental health, addiction recovery. I wrote a book about how I got canceled. So you can check those out. And lastly, lastly, if you really, if you really want to uh, step up your self-awareness game, one way to step up your self-awareness is to get an outside perspective and have somebody tell you some shiz that you don't want to hear. So there is an affiliate link down below for BetterHelp Online Therapy. It's a service that I've personally used. Uh, so yeah, if you're interested in uh, a little bit of therapy that's affordable online with a licensed therapist, check out BetterHelp Online Therapy, all right? Affiliate link is down in the description below. So again, another huge thanks to Steve Fleming. We were trying to plan this out forever. I, it was al It's been almost a year, so I'm so glad we finally linked up and I finally got this episode out. So huge thanks to him. Follow him. Grab a couple copies of his book. And yeah, I'm probably, you know, even though it's my first week of uh, work, I'm probably going to be posting three episodes this week. Uh, that's one of the reasons this episode, early version, came out Sunday. Regular version is coming out Monday. Uh, I just want to get these things caught up, get them out there, because I, 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 I pre-recorded so many episodes because I'm like, oh, I'm going to start working in March and so I'm going to record a ton. But as many of you know, I hate holding on to these things. So yeah, I might have three episodes for you this week. So yeah, make sure that you stay tuned. But other than that, have an amazing rest of your day. Try to up your self-awareness just a little bit. Up the self-awareness, turn down the self-deception, and yeah, it'll be great. So have a great rest of your day, and I'll see you next time.